welcome to Season 7 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that's dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who believe the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode is brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I'm joined by Nitra Samara Wikrema, who is an anthropologist, coach, and writer based in the Bay Area of California. Her work is grounded in a unique method that combines nonviolent communication, so NVC, ethnography, and design thinking. Nethra has a PhD in anthropology from Stanford University and has been practicing nonviolent communication for more than 20 years. Through her coaching practice, she brings the transformative capacity of empathy to help people discover their needs. She provides a space where people can express all their complexity and contradictory feelings and access what they most want to bring into their lives, but have been blocked from achieving. Welcome to the show, Netra. Thank you so much, Anita. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. So you are officially, as far as I know, the first anthropologist that I've had on this show. And I'm excited to talk to you about that because I don't know many anthropologists. And I think Mm -hmm. we have this kind of like vague idea of what anthropology is, like, you know, traveling to a faraway place and studying Mm -hmm. unique cultures and unpacking kind of traditions and customs. Um, But I feel like there's much more to say about anthropology, especially in relation to empathy. So I wonder if you might want to do a little kind of PR, (laughs) you know, why anthropology matters and the role of empathy in it. Mm, Such a beautiful question. Yes, I can um, share about anthropology and Anthropology means so many different things in today's world. It's very different from what it, you know, it has a long colonial history. Um, it's had to make and remake itself over and over again. Um, but for the purposes of what we're talking about today in terms of empathy, um, I think I can offer um, a framework that I find really useful, um, which is the notion of situated perspectives. So in Anthro 101, for instance, what we teach is that, you know, what you see depends on where you're looking from. So the world that we see is shaped by our backgrounds, our histories, our race, class, gender, ethnicity, so many different things. Um, and it's almost like that provides a lens from which we view the world. Like that's our viewfinder. Unfortunately, the problem is that other people don't share that viewfinder or our viewfinder kind of blocks our capacity to see the world from a different perspective. And for this reason, differences become very threatening. Um, Mm. And so what anthropology and the method that we use, which is ethnography, is really about how do you step outside your own head your own perspective, your own vantage point, and see the world from a different vantage point. I does that love make sense? this. It totally does. Because the first thing that comes to mind is, if I show you my water bottle, you and the viewers at home will see this water bottle and not realize that actually this water bottle has this word on it. Uh-huh. Because I can see the word from my perspective. So right. that kind of like brings that immediately to light that, we all have different perspectives on things and that changes the way we see the world 
and the you know the, how we you know navigate the world. Oh, okay, I so understand um, why ethnography and anthropology are useful in contemporary society, given what we're up against. So, how would you define empathy, just out of curiosity? Yeah, so that's um, so many dimensions, actually, to loop back to what I love the fact that you rotated the bottle and showed, you know, showed it to us. One of the uh, we have a similar image that we use, except we use like a world map, right? So if you if I say world map, I'm imagining that you see something that we see all the time, right? Where the US is on top, right? There's a north and there's a south. And it's it's like that, right? that's very familiar to us because it's what we see all the time. Now, if I took that map and rotated it, it's like, wait, the world is upside down now, right? Like, where are we? It's confusing. It's deeply confusing and disorienting. And so one of the things that um, I used to think about empathy is like, when we see the world, we see the map in the way that we're used to seeing the map mm -hmm. and understanding another's perspective is actually coming to them with an openness to see that map in a way that looks upside down to us. Mm -hmm. And so it's really like, how can I listen? How can I be with another? How can I understand their experiences in a way that I'm looking for the peaks and valleys the 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 rivers the um um the landscapes that are on their side of the map that I can't see when I'm looking just from my side yeah you know when I listen to you talk about that it makes me think of the degree of humility that has to come with um trying to understand someone else's perspective um because so much of what we believe to be true in the world is based on, well, certainly lived experience, but also everything that we've learned. And there's almost needs to be sort of, you know, whether it's framed as an unlearning or a stepping away from what we've learned so that something else can emerge. Um, but humility strikes me as a kind of a mm -hmm. fundamental here. Yes, that totally resonates with me because I think that, it can be really threatening to see a different perspective. And I think a part of it is that, you know, we are wired for connection in so many ways. And, and oftentimes we're socialized to think that to have connection, you need sameness. Mm. Like you have to be like me for me to get you. Mm. And so even if it's someone who, you know, grew up in the same household with so many of the same experiences, there is still a difference, you know, there is still a uniqueness to each person's reality. And especially when I see, when I work with conflict mediation, um, this is something that comes up a lot, like your reality cannot be different from my reality because it threatens my sense of self. Mm. But actually it doesn't have to, I think. In my experience, it's actually exactly as you said about humility it's about being able to come with a curiosity and an openness to not knowing and wanting to discover 
And I absolutely cannot wait to get into this work, uh, nonviolent communication and some of the, the coaching that you do. Uh, cannot wait, but I have one final question as a bridge. Um, you know, all that you've learned through your studies as an anthropologist and, and doing ethnography um, and, and design thinking, which I know is also part of your, your whole wheelhouse of, of tools, I wonder if you could share from a personal perspective how your life changed as you started coming into contact with the theories and the practices of ethnography and how you personally navigated your relationships, uh, you know, with friends, with family, and then the world at large differently. Thank you for that question. Um, so it, it's been a, it, it hasn't been a linear process. There's been quite a circularity to it. Um, I encountered nonviolent communication in BC when I was very young. I was 15. I was in Sri Lanka, which is where I grew up. Um, and I heard a cassette tape at that time of Marshall Rosenberg, who developed the process, um, talk about empathy. And in that moment, in the midst of my teenage anxieties and, you know, high in school, um, one of the things that I felt immediately was like, it is okay to feel everything I'm feeling. And there was just this immense sense of relief that there could be acceptance of what was happening inside me and that I didn't have to be someone who achieved something to matter. Mm. So um, then it took a long time. I came to the U.S. Um, I was an undergraduate student and I took a workshop with Marshall Rosenberg and when he was still alive. And I remember, Anita, the first time I was listened to in this specific way that um, NVC supports us in listening, it was the strangest experience because I felt that when the person who was listening to me stayed with me in whatever I was sharing, I started to understand my own experience in a way that I couldn't have before. So it was almost like they were holding a space in which I could go inside and inquire. And there was something just immensely safe and immensely relieving that in that acceptance of what was going on inside me, I could also accept it myself. Yeah. And that for me kind of reminds me of, you know, just the act of reflecting back things that you hear, holding the space for other people because we're so busy in our society, you know, preparing how to answer to the next person, especially if we're triggered emotionally, right? And the idea of really, really intentionally and purposely trying to listen for the, for the, the goal is understanding as opposed to like, but you're wrong about this. <laughs> I don't see it that way. Right. Is is um, is a gift, I think. But I think we're going to get there now. So uh, why don't you uh, explain what NBC is? You've kind of, you know, given a little you flirted with the definition, but not quite. And then as an NBC facilitator, like you've borne witness to the transformative power of two way empathy, you call it. Can you say more about all of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was trying to think about how to. Um, talk about NBC and I think it means different things to different people and I can talk about my entry point into it um, but Marshall Rosenberg uh, who developed the, the practice the method the way of thinking 
was interested in a couple of questions and you can hear him talk about it. There's lots of videos of him on YouTube. Um, and he says he was interested in, you know, what are the forms of communication that foster connection and understanding between people? And what are the con- forms of connect- communication that block that? Mm. And what is the difference between the two? And one of the things he said is, I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm teaching you to remember something you already know, which is how to connect. Mm. And, um, and so it's really about the purpose and the orientation, I think, is to understand another person's reality without judgment, um, without blame, without criticism, and then start to think collaboratively how can we co-create ways to meet our needs um, so that is kind of my understanding of it um, there are tools and processes and practices like reflective listening um, you know saying to the other person this is what I heard you say did I get it and on a deeper level I think it's really about how can I be with another in the fullness of their experience and the fullness of my experience without collapsing um, the two? Hmm. So honoring the other and the self simultaneously. Right. So have you, can you share an example of, you know, two people having a breakdown of communication and how NBC can, and empathy, this two-way empathy can, can help. Yes. Um, so I can I can talk a little bit about um, what I've been doing recently. So um, uh, along with my collaborator Yuri Zaitsev, I run um, something called the Listening Lab or the Lab for Listening, and we um, we teach workshops and we have courses on difficult conversations. And when we started to teach people how to have difficult conversations, we really focused on the difficulty. You know, it's like, what do you do when someone says something judgmental? How do you talk about um, harm that's been done to you? Um, How do you say no to someone when they ask you for something that, you know, you don't want to do? And something happened in the process of teaching these classes that made us actually re-engineer what we were doing we started to help people hear each other and connect with each other Mm. in a two-way process. And the way we started is, you know, just like asking people, you know, tell each other a story about what happened to you recently Mm -hmm. and then have the other person listen. Mm -hmm. And even from this small exercise, people would come back and be like, oh my gosh, it was so nice to share without being interrupted, without the other person like saying, I have a story like that, right? And just to be able to speak and know that the other person is with you. Mm-hmm. And slowly in these, um, in our workshops over time, we wouldn't need to remind people, but when one person spoke, everyone else would be listening very attentively. And we started to see that there was this connection that was forming in the group that we were facilitating between participants. And 
then as we started to introduce um, more difficult things like, okay, so let's say that um, someone says something judgmental to you or, or someone says, this is an easier one, ask someone for something, make a request and then have the other person say no, right? Immediate, like opening for a difficult discussion. <laughs> And what we started to do was to train people, to train the person who was asking, to ask in a way that gave the other person permission to say no if they didn't want to. Mm. And we told the person who's saying no to say, I can't do this thing that you're asking, but how can I help you meet your needs in a different way? Mm. That's a gift, both directions. Both directions, right? And the thing, Anita, that we found and we keep finding every time we teach this is that people say the thing that we were in conflict about, it doesn't matter anymore. Mm. Because what really matters is that the person heard why I was wanting it. And the other person says, the person who asked understands why I said no. Mm-hmm. And then they start to work together in a very collaborative way to think about how both people's needs can be met. I can imagine how useful this is between colleagues or a boss and, a, and an employee, between couples, with mm-hmm. ch- parents with children. I mean, the applications are huge. Today's episode was brought to you by Grant Here and International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Let me ask about you know, there's a very toxic environment for communication. You can't even call it communication. I don't even know what you'd call it. Uh, Toxic sludge, social media. So we are, you know, swimming in this world full of um, ideological divide and Mm -hmm. nastiness through anonymity. Do you think we've collectively gotten to a place where, you know, we, uh, whatever kind of intuitive empathic ways of communicating that we had are kind of falling to the wayside and we actually have to like really learn this as a skill and that we have to bring it to all our places where we communicate. Yeah, I think it is such a, um, you know, Marshall Rosenberg called judgments, tragic expressions of human needs. And when I see the warfare that happens on social media, this is really what I see, right? That, that in order to be seen, in order to be heard, in order to be understood, we communicate partially through that anonymity in ways that the other has to be obliterated. Like there is no space for difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that um, was really striking and surprising to me was with one of our students in the Difficult Conversations class We were teaching him reflective listening, which is this process of you listen for what the other person says and you see if you can capture the heart of it. And then you repeat it back and you check back in and say, did I get it? Mm -hmm. Um, So as soon as he learned this, he uh, learned it in class. He went back home to his roommate. And um, this was before an election and they started having a political discussion. And they were on completely different sides of the political spectrum. And my my student was just like 
finding himself getting really upset. Like, how could you possibly hold the views that you hold? But then he remembered the skill he learned. He's like, okay, let me just try it because nothing else is working. We're just, you know, getting to the point where the whole thing is breaking down. And he started to listen in this way, not to agree, but to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so he actually said, okay, this is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Um, and what he found was the more he understood the roommate's perspective, the more the roommate actually backed away from the extreme versions of what he was saying. Mm. And the conversation ended with him saying, I don't actually believe these things, um, but I have to belong to my community. And this is what my community says I should believe. Mm. You know, and if I don't say these people don't belong here, these, you know, like if I don't hold these perspectives, then I will lose connection with the people I grew up with. And something very different came out of that. Um, and the, the thing that came up was that, you know, for me was exactly what Marshall Rosenberg says, which is that empathy is not agreement. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, so obviously you're speaking to the converted that I think that this way of communicating with one another and and empathizing, you know, the generosity that opens up, sort of like the non-judgment that opens up in those modalities of communicating are are like precious and, and at an aggregate level could really, you know, basically create peace on the planet. Um, but what do you say to someone who says, you know, I'm exhausted from my positionality and intersectionality in the world. And I don't feel like I have much more energy to NVC a conversation into a place of, of kindness. Like I'm angry at racists. I'm angry at people who are homophobic. I'm angry at, you know, yeah. I would say it is not your responsibility. Like someone needs to give you empathy. (laughs) if you want it, right? There are so many people in the world who can, who can do that work. But if you are exhausted and if you are, you know, not only carrying the suffering of your historical and structural um, marginalization, now you, you know, you're being asked to do the added work, right? Of holding space when you don't have the capacity And I think that is my vision of empathy is not that my vision of empathy is that that person gets held with tremendous amounts of care while other people step in who have the capacity, have the bandwidth um, to do that work. You know, and I think this is why we can't do all of this alone. Um, And it doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries. It's not permissiveness, I think, to do what, you know, to allow someone to do whatever they want. But it's really about um, leading a conversation with an intention of like, this is what I want to see. Mm -hmm. And um, holding that very, very deeply with care and listening beneath the surface of what the other person is saying. Mm 
because oftentimes the things they're saying and the things that they actually want are not the same thing. Yeah, which is, you know, for me, there's an emphasis on being intentional. So like purposeful, having purposeful empathy, right? Like, you know, you don't just show up, you show up on purpose in a framework or in a headspace where, you know, to the best of your ability, given whatever circumstances you can, that, you know, you're, you want something to manifest and be available to bloom between two people, right? Absolutely, Anita. And I think self-care is just as important as care for the other. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I um, often teach and really try to practice myself is if I'm giving someone empathy and there's aggression coming at me, you know, there's a level, there's a threshold beyond which I'm no longer listening, actually, because I'm in so much pain. Mm-hmm. And I think in that moment, stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you've come to a point where it's a massive effort and it's coming at cost to yourself, then you're not taking care of your own needs. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, giving empathy, a part of that is like asking, what is my capacity right now? And if I can't proceed with this conversation, let me actually stop here. I can come back to it. I can ask someone else to do it, right? But um, if we push ourselves past threshold, then we're actually re-triggering ourselves. We're, you know, going through so trauma, I, perhaps. So I'm almost hearing that the first step of self-empathy is actually self-awareness right? Knowing, like knowing that you've been triggered, recognizing how your body feels or mm-hmm. what's happening in your mind, right? Um, and down-regulating and then, you know, putting up whatever boundary needs to be communicated uh, as an act of self-care, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk about judgment because um, that's something easy that we can do, right? I can judge you for this. I can judge you for that. I'm doing it subconsciously. I don't, I'm not even aware that I'm judging. How can we kind of roll back the judgment of others um, in your practice? What do you do around that? Yeah, my favorite way to talk about this is like to think about it in relation to conflicts between couples um, and what happens when people who love each other also judge each other. Mm-hmm. So When I heard this, um, when I heard Marshall say that judgments are a tragic expression of our needs, it was like a light bulb went into my head because. Say that slowly again, because I think that's worth repeating. Say it again. Yes. So the idea is that judgments, like the judgments we make of others or the judgments, yeah, let's say the judgments we make of others are a tragic expression of our needs. So. I'll give you an example. So let's say, um, you know, we're having a conversation and I want to be heard in a very particular way. Mm-hmm. And you're excited to share whatever happened for you today. And in my head, I'm like, well, she's a bad listener, right? And it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what you're saying or doing in a sense. It's like my need to be heard is not getting met. 
And the way I express that is to say to the other person, you're a bad listener. Mm-hmm. And if you say that to someone, the chances that you're going to be heard are not very high because now they're going to be really upset at you. Mm-hmm. Right. So oftentimes I think we, um, we communicate if something is not um, working for us, we label the other person mm-hmm. as as bad or wrong or problematic in this way or that way. So an example would be, so if you have a couple, um, one person wants to like really spend some time together and connect. And the other person like has had a rough day, comes back home and it's just like, I just need alone time. I need space. I need distance, right? And now they're in conflict about what to do. So the person who wants connection tells a partner, well, you're so cold and unfeeling, you're like unavailable. And the person who wants space is like, oh God, you're so clingy, right? You're so needy, you're so clingy. It's just like, you always want to talk, just like, get away from me, <laughs> right? And, and so there's a conflict. And these are between people who actually really care about each other, <laughs> So what do we do, right? It's actually very vulnerable to say, I just want to be with you. I want to feel close to you. You know, can we have some time together? And it's scary to say because the other person might say no, Mm -hmm. right? And for the person who wants space, you know, to just be like, I so want to be with you right now, but I can't even be with myself. Mm. You know, it's not about you. I would just like to take a little time and I'll come back to you. So there's a difference, right? When you say it like that. So the bottom line I'm hearing when it comes to this example is that the more we are capable about being vulnerable and sharing our, you know, human needs, the better the outcome is. If nothing else, the the other person can hear us for what we want. Right. You know, rather than um, what we don't want or interpret it in a way that's like disconnecting. Mm-hmm. And I think the chances of um, getting what we want are higher when we vulnerably share. Like, this is the thing that um, really, you know, if you spend 20 minutes with me today, like, this is what it would do for me. And then also give the other person the chance to, like, have choice about that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It sounds like it's just so softening, like it softens all the edges. Um, And I think people generally want to be generous to other people when they don't feel like they're the bad guy in the whole thing, right? Which is sort of like to to unpack the judgment and replace it with an expression of needs. Wow, how powerful. I'm sensing that uh, our time is is coming to an end soon, and I I don't want to say goodbye without asking you to share a personal story, if you would, about how you know if you can think of a time when you were on the receiving end 
of empathy and what that meant for you? Mm. That's such a great question. Um, actually, I can talk about how um, I became a coach uh -huh. and the role of empathy in that. Um, so I was you know, finishing up graduate school, completely stressed out, on track to be um, an academic. And, um, but I was doing this work on empathy. Um, I would go to these classes in San Francisco and two days a week, I really felt like something happened in me where I felt safe, I felt seen, I felt understood, I felt unafraid. And alive in a way that I hadn't before and I would go back and forth between um, a lot of pressure in the path that I was en route to take and this other way that just felt like like I felt like I was my full self and I was you know debating what should I do where should I go um, and there were a couple of people in my life, some close friends, who just kept saying to me, like, you shine when you do what you love. So do what you love, you know? And I also listened to my, they said, listen to your body. Like, when are you tense? And when are you um, safe inside your own body? And when are you in a state of flow? <laughs> And I slowly, slowly followed that. Um, and I can say that what used to be two to four hours a week of my life two years ago is like most of my day now. And it is such a joy to do the work I do. And, but I couldn't have come here unless a few people were listening very deeply for what I wanted to do when I actually didn't have the capacity to do that for myself. Mm. And so it was these friendships, you know, and these, um, yeah, these people who were really intent on helping me create a life that was my own. <laughs> that is a beautiful story. And I can say that you sort of, emanate this absolute I don't know sublime radiant joy factor in talking <laughs> about the work that's keeping you busy these days Nethra it was such a pleasure to meet you and have this conversation thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me this afternoon and I want to thank all our viewers and listeners uh, we'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy Thank you so much, Anita. It was such a joy. <laughs> what if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, make that important decision, liberate you from whatever is holding you back? At Grant Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice anytime from anywhere. Visit GrantHuronInternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.